the administrators are arguing that there's a lot of opium consumption, thus crime rates are increasing, thus we should kind of restrict opium. Whereas the metropolitan officials are arguing, well, we kind of know that Burma is the most quote-unquote criminal province of the British Indian Empire. Isn't it just because you have a lot more criminals that you have a lot more opium? And aren't you getting it the other way around? Welcome to another episode of Scope Conditions. From the University of British Columbia, I'm Alan Jacobs. And I'm Yang Yang Zhao. Today on Scope Conditions, how the paper pushers of empires reshaped colonialism in Southeast Asia. Our guest today is Dr. Diana Kim, an assistant professor at Georgetown's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service, and currently the Hans Cohn member at the Institute for Advanced Studies. In her award-winning book, Empires of Vice, Diana unpacks the puzzle of opium prohibition in the French and British colonies of Southeast Asia. As she traces out the twists and turns of colonial drug policies, Diana asks how states define the problems that they need to solve, and how policymakers come to see crisis in the things they once took for granted. For decades, opium was a cornerstone of European colonialism in places like Burma, Malaya, and French Indochina. At their peak, opium taxes made up more than half of all colonial taxes. At the same time, levying a surcharge on what they deemed a peculiarly Asian vice gave the colonizers a sense of moral superiority over their subjects. But over the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Colonial governments across Southeast Asia made a sharp reversal toward opium prohibition. Why did the French and British choose to crack down on what they had once seen as a fiscal bedrock of empire? How did empires that had grown up so tightly entangled with the opium trade come to see the drug as so deeply troubling? As Diana contends, this dramatic about-face was driven less by dictates from London and Paris and more by the evolving understandings of low-level bureaucrats on the ground in the colonies. Through the day-to-day work of administering policies and keeping records, these minor functionaries developed pet theories, drew casual causal inferences, and constructed new official realities that filtered up to the highest reaches of government, shaping perceptions, issue frames, and policy debates in the metropoles. We talk with Diana about how imperial drug policies across the region were recast from the bottom up as rank-and-file bureaucrats puzzled and often bungled their way through the everyday challenges of running an empire. We also discuss how Diana pieced together these stories, how she turned troves of archival paperwork strewn across three continents into coherent narratives. She tells us how she reconstructed colonial administrators' interpretive struggles and how she connected the dots from ideas developed on the ground to political debates and decisions back in Europe. And we talk with Diana about the unusual portrait she paints of colonial governance, one in which the colonizers assume power before they've really figured out what to do with it. Rather than a confident empire imposing its will on its subjects, we see decision-making processes shot through with misperception, unintended consequences, and inner anxieties. 
we get Diana to reflect on how her account squares with common understandings of imperialism and of the state itself. We hope you enjoy this conversation. To stay informed about future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Scope Conditions and check out our website, scopeconditionspodcast.com, where you can also find references to all the academic works we discuss. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Now, here's our conversation with Diana Kim. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So the puzzle at the center of your book has to do with a sharp change in the relationship of empires to vice. Specifically, it's about a pretty dramatic shift in how the British and French imperial powers treat the consumption of opium in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Could you start by giving us a sense of just how central opium had been to the expansion of European empires into Southeast Asia? It's really not an overstatement to say that opium was one of the foundational building blocks for European colonial states throughout Southeast Asia during the 19th century. And so in a material sense, it was a legalized good that was sold for popular consumption. For the British and the French who collected more than 50% of their local tax revenue in today's Singapore and Vietnam, those are the two most highly of lucrative colonies for opium, that revenue was also in turn used to build major infrastructures like railroads, lighthouses, ports, canals. Opium was also known as one of the quote-unquote three beasts of burden in the case of French Indochina that carried the colonial budget. So it was opium alongside alcohol and salt, which were the major sources of tax revenue for the colony. And in addition to that, opium was also one of the first mass-produced consumer commodities. So opium smoking occurred throughout the cities, in major ports for dock workers, on plantations, in the tin mining areas, um, throughout the Malay Peninsula and the silver mines of Burma. So it's really everywhere. And then for the colonial states, they built institutions, opium tax farming systems, through which they delegated the right to sell this opium distribute to private entrepreneurs. And those became major vehicles for capital accumulation. Sometimes they doubled as banks, and they also helped contribute to the growth of economic elites. So it has this huge material life. And then it also is part of the official language and discourse for empires in saying that the sale of opium, the kind of regulation of it, is part of what justifies imperial expansion as well as intervention into people's lives. So you see a kind of utilitarian logic in the official rhetoric. Anything from respecting the traditional practices and religious customs of Asian people to using modern medicine and science to protect the vulnerable. So opium is really peppered throughout the language through which the empires are justifying their rule. So there was this extended period of time during which European empires in Southeast Asia were really fiscally dependent on taxing opium markets. And then, as you point out, what's puzzling is that by the late 19th century, these empires begin turning to what's called opium prohibition, which, as you also tell us, wasn't really a ban on opium. So what did opium prohibition look like? The era of prohibition 
is basically around the 1890s into the 1940s. And it is effectively what we would recognize today as the centralization of state control over previously legal markets. In a concrete way, it means that the state is taking over the opium tax farms. They nationalize control over them. They put tight restrictions on when and where opium can be sold. So previously, you might have an opium shop open at night, certain hours, at the discretion of private entrepreneurs. This is changing under prohibition. The state dictates when the shops will close. They dictate how much is going to be sold in restricted amounts. They do away with licensing schemes through which people could individually sell opium. They're centralizing control over it. And so in that sense, it's really different from what we think about in terms of prohibition in the United States for alcohol, for instance. The 18th Amendment and the manufacture, the sale and transportation of liquor. It's also really different from the criminalization of hard drugs that we know today. But that's only when you're looking backwards. If you think about the kind of world I was describing before, where there's this openness to markets, a lot of contested meetings about what opium is, that's legal, legitimate in different ways, we're moving away from that world into a place where things are narrower. What is officially permissible is much more delimited. The state is the only authorized entity to regulate those markets. And it's the state that replaces religion or market forces as the governing kind of actor over opium markets. So that's what prohibition looks like. Taking a quick step back, can you help us understand how these Western European colonial administrators viewed opium as a vice or as something else, like a cultural practice? What was the lens they were using to inform how they viewed opium? For colonial administrators based in Southeast Asia, opium was, at least initially, this kind of capacious vice. And vice, in this vague way, really is capturing how differently administrators themselves perceived of it. In a general sense, opium was being smoked, which itself was an unfamiliar practice for many Europeans, and it was thought of as sort of uniquely, quote-unquote, Asiatic. Throughout the book, I argue that the category of vice itself collapses at least three different meanings, that of Christian sin and kind of absolute immorality. It also kind of means just harm harm to self. And this is the conventional way we talk about it in terms of victimless crimes. So self-harm through various addictions or communal disruptions. And then there's towards the late 19th century, and this is the kind of idea of scientific racism and social Darwinism informed understanding of vice that we're more familiar with, which is that it was a kind of degenerate practice. It was something that was atavistic, something that was a more savage kind of practice There's remarks about how opium is used um, as a painkiller in Burma when they're doing breech tattoos, which are full tattoos on the, the thighs of young men, which hurts a lot. It's seen as a traditional practice. There's disagreement about whether or not women use it at all. So it's this kind of messy set of biases about what is different about people that are non white not like us, but seem to be doing their own thing. So in a kind of blunt nutshell, that was how vice was being seen. 
I'm hearing so many echoes into how we think about policing drugs and and other illicit activities today. And I'm really excited to get into that later on in this conversation. But Diana, how did you come to settle on this topic for your dissertation? Was opium prohibition in Southeast Asia during this specific historical time period what you wanted to study from the beginning? Not at all. And it really took me a long time to see prohibition, this shift, as a puzzle at all in the first place. And I kind of stumbled on it while I was trying to design a really different project that was much more situated in the contemporary moment. I was originally interested and I had written an MA thesis on the HIV AIDS epidemic in Thailand because I was super interested in the country, which was globally lauded for a long time as a success story in terms of reducing HIV prevalence rates, especially in terms of targeting sex workers, controlling, injecting drug use. And so I had envisioned that as a grad student, I would do this cool three-country comparison of Thailand to Burma and Laos, three countries that share this borderland called the Golden Triangle region, which was both often called an epicenter for the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the 90s and onward, and had intersecting networks of sex trafficking, drug trafficking. So I was curious in why governments dealt differently with it, why they couldn't coordinate better to resolve the borderland tensions. What I kept on realizing was that underlying those policy variations in government approaches was this sort of deeper commonality. They all had these super harsh narcotic drug laws on the books, Even though, as I was reading from the history, they had all once relied on legalized opium markets, and this was less than a 50 or 60 year old story. And I found that kind of total about face super fascinating, especially as I came to realize this was throughout the region. Every country in Southeast Asia had this kind of radical reversal. Even though opium was a large source of state revenue, So, you know, you're a grad student, you're reading through Margaret Livy, you're reading through Charles Tilly, you're primed to think about the state as maximizing revenue under constraints. And here, all of a sudden, it looks like the state is doing the opposite. It's giving up revenue. So how do you understand that? That was really how the puzzle started to emerge and took me down the road of history. From the literature, we have a number of existing explanations of this global turn toward the prohibition of opium. There are arguments about a change in international norms driven by transnational and religious activists, or arguments about positions taken by the United States, which saw itself as a global moral force. Could you briefly lay out the main existing explanations of this phenomenon? The predominant explanation for the global anti-opium turn really has focused on the role of moral crusaders, especially transnationally active, often religiously inspired actors who reframe the meaning of opium and its commercial use as a sort of absolute injury, absolute harm to humanity and lobbies various governments. So the British is a particularly strong case in where you see this. Organizations such as the Society for the Suppression of the Anglo-Oriental Opium Trade is a powerful lobbying group that pushes parliament to adopt an anti-opium stance. There are tons of Christian missionaries, often in China, 
And Kathleen Lodwick's book on the anti-opium crusaders elucidates powerfully how these actors shift the moral conscience through which opium is understood. And then there's this kind of more recent strand of literature that points out it's not just the religious actors who are doing a ton of the moral language, but there are a lot of secular reformers, activists within India, building ties to actors within the United States, galvanizing anti-opium movements as part of a move towards progressive changes in terms of connecting anti-opium issues to the protection of women and children and other vulnerable populations throughout the world. So that's the kind of main explanation that goes alongside a literature that talks about the role of metropolitan politics, which are often shaped by the growth of scientific knowledge about morphine, the growth of the medical professions, and better understandings of how addictive opium is. And within Britain and France during the late 19th century, and then especially during the early 20th, around World War I, you see a lot of legislations coming out that are tying opium and its addiction to soldiers, to national security concerns, and also putting it under medical and pharmaceutical control. And there's a kind of idea that it was the metropole that was driving this anti-opium recognition, and that was diffusing to the colonies. And then the third set of explanations, as you pointed towards so well, is the role of international institutions, especially the role of the American empire. So the early 20th century is the growth of a sort of imperial humanitarianism tied to both crises of legitimacy within liberal empires growth of international prohibition regimes, the ones that Ethan Nadelman talks about, that helped build international institutions such as the League of Nations Opium Advisory Committee, which is the predecessor to the UN today and the UN Office for Drugs and Crime, to kind of police the world. And the United States takes a super strong role in this, especially at a time when the European old empires are known to have this vexed history with legalized opium trade. And the United States empire is taking this as one way to distinguish itself as the more morally upright empire, the cleaner empire, and it's a prestige signaling argument that goes on. So that's the kind of dominant way we talk about the global prohibition turn. So we have these three prevailing explanations. First, the role of religious and secular activists. Next, the growing medical literature and how we are understanding addiction. And lastly, the role of the U.S. and other international institutions. If these are the prevailing explanations out there for the prohibition of opium, can you tell us what they're missing? And specifically, what are some clues that they are incomplete as explanations for the turn to prohibition in colonial Southeast Asia? The existing explanations are not so much incorrect as they are incomplete for understanding Southeast Asia. And there are at least three reasons why. One, the literature that deals with transnational activists and moral crusaders focuses almost predominantly on what's going on between India and China. And here the end of the opium trade happens in 1907, as a result of treaties and international cooperation between the British Empire in India and the Qing Emperor. That storyline doesn't quite work for Southeast Asia, where opium trade from India into Southeast Asia continues for an extra 30 years. So this is one type of clue 
that suggests that there's something more going on in Southeast Asia to halt its opium-addicted colonial states, if you put it that way. A second limitation of the existing literature is that the timing of major metropolitan anti-narcotic legislations have a gap between when they're introduced or occurring within the colonies. So Britain and France, around 1908 and 1916, introduced their major anti-narcotic laws. But in, for example, in France, an exemption to a 1908 act is carved out for Indochina, in part recognizing that at least a quarter of the colony's revenue is coming from opium. And so they exempt opium smoking from this major legislation and allow it to continue. So the colonies are kinds of spaces of exception to the metropolitan regimes. And then finally, when we think about the role of the growth of international institutions and prohibition regimes, again, the timing is slightly off. So some of the international interventions that require states to introduce anti-narcotic laws barely touch upon what's going on in places like Malaya. So the, it applies to Britain, but not to the colonies. Another really striking instance is the case of Burma, where if we were to think that the American empire and its rivalry with the European empires is doing a lot to push a global prohibition regime, these should be happening after the 1900s, when the American empire enters the Philippines and opium really comes onto its agenda. But in the case of Burma, anti-opium reforms are already occurring in 1894, six years earlier. And so that suggests to us that there's a pre-existing dynamic that's going on within the colonies that are shaping prohibition, not just the international and global sphere. Well, let's now get into the book's central argument about what that dynamic within the colonies was. In the book, you argue that an important piece of the explanation of the turn to opium prohibition lies in what you call the everyday work and understandings of local administrators who were stationed in the colonies. One step in your argument involves tracing out how these officials on the ground came to construct the problems around them, how they constructed the status quo, the state's fiscal reliance on taxing opium as fundamentally illegitimate. We realize there's a lot of fine-grained detail in, in the book, and that the particulars vary from case to case that you analyze. But can you summarize for us broadly what this problem construction that bureaucrats were engaged in looked like? One crucial part of my argument is trying to explain what made opium prohibition possible. And to that, my argument is the construction of official problems that accumulated within the state over time, incrementally erodes the state's confidence in the drug itself, which effectively there's a loss of perceived legitimacy about opium among the state's own actors. And when I talk about official problem construction, I mean something quite specific in terms of an official problem. It's something that the state sees worth solving and politically actionable. So in the book, I give three examples through three of the case studies, this official problem that the state recognizes of opium addiction among the Bourbon population. The indigenous population is one 
Another is a dangerous reliance of fiscal dependency upon opium revenue. And then the third one for French Indochina is a reliance upon imports of opium. And the crucial point here is that these are all problematic in many ways for a state to govern, but none of them are necessarily politically actionable by the state. And I'm arguing that it requires a level of interpretation and clarity provided by the bureaucrats about what exactly this problem is, why it is a problem, as well as internal evidence that demonstrates whether qualitatively or quantitatively through description or through statistics that shows there's actually something that they believe is a reason to be acting. And that process of official problem construction, in my account, happens in two steps. One, there's a step of definition. The bureaucrats have their internal administrative archive. They're able to look retrospectively into their own accumulated records and identify when certain problems first emerged and explain how they continue over time. And then there's a second level of escalation embedded in the nature of bureaucratic work. And I'm really talking about the low-level administrators, the guys who are doing a lot of desk work, papers, going door-to-door, collecting sales revenue from opium tax farmers. Their work is repetitive, routinized, and habitual in a way that as it accumulates over time, it also gives more reality, a denser reality to perceived problems. And over time at different moments, that is seen as something that is actually true. So the actors, in effect, give reality to their own perceived problems. I think it's really fascinating how key the framing and interpretation of the problem by local on-the-ground administrators, bureaucrats, is to your argument. And an example in your book that stands out to me is your chapter on British Burma. In that chapter, you have an example about this prison where inmates are dying, there's a big cholera outbreak, and you have the prison administrators basically saying, okay, let's look at our statistics. It looks like everyone who was affected by this cholera outbreak also smoked opium. And so causally, that means opium leads to cholera outbreak. And, you know, just recognizing some of these causal identification mistakes that we in academia sometimes make ourselves like selecting on the DV. Can you walk us through that example a little bit more? It's one of my favorite examples in the book, and there's a fun archival story tied to it because it came from my recognizing that the official problem of opium addiction in Burma was being described as moral wreckage. They had a super specific narrative behind it that opium is the cause of moral wreckage defined as a very petty form of crime that isn't detectable through the courts, but it was people stealing vegetables from each other, sons stealing jewelry from their mother-in-laws, these kind of moral decay indicators. And there was a set of conversations that I saw between local bureaucrats and metropolitan officials arguing about exactly the way Yang Yang you were mentioning, whether or not there was reverse causality at all. So the administrators are arguing that There's a lot of opium consumption, thus crime rates are increasing, thus we should kind of restrict opium. Whereas the metropolitan officials are arguing, well, we kind of know that Burma is the most quote-unquote criminal province of the British Indian Empire. 
isn't it just because you have a lot more criminals that you have a lot more opium? And aren't you getting it the other way around? To which the administrator, this man's name is Donald Smeaton, says adamantly, no, it is exactly the opposite. So I was curious, like, where does this confidence come from? How does he actually state this? So I was tracing it back in the administrative records. The prison records I actually found when I was in the archives in Yangon, in Burma. And they show how one of the earliest moments when the administrators, who have a very vague sensibility that opium is kind of associated with crime and also kind of associated with disease, but they all seem to go together. And they kind of leave it at that until they meet this crisis in the prison where a ton of inmates are suddenly dying. And from an administrative perspective, this is a problem. It looks bad on them. Yes, they're criminals, but you also don't want to have the most death-ridden prison among all of the prisons in Burma. So to solve that, they start to collect statistics. They look at who actually enters the jail with an opium addiction habit before, who acquires it afterwards, and they use that to sort of sort out whether or not people are more diseased in the jail when they have opium habits before, They do kind of weird controlled comparisons, and it's through that over multiple years that they figure out that, okay, we think that opium causes disease, but we don't really know if that disease means the causation of criminality, so we really need to think through this. And so there's this puzzling process that constantly happens. That's fascinating. Clearly, they needed an instrumental variable. I know. They just didn't think that far. Cultivation (laughs) or something. (laughs) (laughs) So in Burma, the problem definition that emerges from these local officials' everyday puzzling and interpretive work is opium as a contributor to crime and public health crises. They're looking around them at the evidence they think they're seeing and drawing causal links from opium to these other social ills. How did local officials in your other two cases, Malaya and French Indochina, construct the problems around opium? What what were the causal stories that officials there were telling? In the case of Malaya, the official problem conception was about a dangerous reliance upon opium revenue, something that initially was not seen as terribly problematic. It was accepted as the way that the colony is, a pragmatic situation. And the key causal story that's going on here is that Chinese entrepreneurs who were doing a lot for the opium sales and were also a majority consumer base for that opium were seen as par for the course. But through bureaucratic puzzling and problem definition, this shifts into a conception about fiscal dependency as being dangerous and that the Chinese population and their opium-consuming habits as both worrisome, but also a domestic, economic, elite force that needed to be placated to have their rights and duties clarified as part of a new anti-opium regime. So the official problem becomes something of worries about Chinese revenue contributions The official problem conception for French Indochina is slightly different, although French Indochina also has a large reported amount of opium revenue coming from opium sales. But here the problem is that there's a dangerous reliance upon opium imported from India, 
introduced from China that makes the colony especially vulnerable to market forces or to disruptions. And this leads the bureaucrats to introduce a spate of different pricing schemes, zoning arrangements, to control and stabilize that type of vulnerability to opium imports, which initially was not seen as terribly problematic, but becomes so over time, I argue, through the official construction of bureaucratic problems. So in all three places, but in different ways, local administrators come to see opium consumption and opium markets as deeply problematic. You then go on to argue that the understandings of these local administrators shaped colonial policies and pushed these empires toward prohibiting opium instead of reaping revenues from it. Now, we're used to thinking of lower-level bureaucrats as shaping policy, but usually at the stage of implementation, for instance, in the ways in which street-level bureaucrats might use or carve out discretion in carrying out policies that have been decided on at the top. But you're arguing that the ways lower-level officials, bureaucrats, constructed these problems, they actually filtered up and shaped decision-making at the very top, which is an unusual way of explaining big changes in policy fundamentals. So to help us understand how this works, could you first give us an idea of who these local administrators were? What kinds of backgrounds did these men tend to have? And what was their role in building and sustaining these empires? The low-level, mid-level administrators that I look at are predominantly British, French, i.e. European white administrators, low-level, usually below the level of a chief commissioner, and so district officers, commissioners within different bureaucratic offices. And they tended to be the ones who were educated in the metropole, so Oxford-Cambridge graduates. The École Coloniale in France was another kind of institution that produced them, so they were trained. And then they were from diverse class backgrounds. And there's actually a variation between the British and French empires in terms of who comes predominantly from the provinces, more in the case of France, versus more kind of London-centered officials coming from Britain. These are the officers, and I look across multiple bureaucratic agencies. So the excise department is actually the key site of opium-related taxation because opium itself is categorized as an excise tax. But there are also officers within the prison and jail administration. They're sometimes involved in customs, education as well, and finance, of course. So they're the ones who are often doing, and I'm really going to stress the paperwork dimension of the administration of colonialism. They are similar to street-level bureaucrats in the Lipsky sense, or as Bernardo Zaka has talked about the kind of service providers who work at the local level interacting with people. But the kind of catch is that these guys are rather insulated. So they encounter a lot of people. They interact with shopkeepers. They interact with individuals. They deal with protests, sometimes anti-opium protests in the colonies as well. But their role isn't really policing individuals so much as they're doing the record keeping and keeping the office running type of guys. So they're the sort of boring desk jockeys, to put them kind of simply. And then a great deal of the book's analysis centers on how these 
boring desk jockeys shaped imperial policies on opium. How did these, you know, relatively low-level officials, the paper pushers, come to have such a big impact? They do it indirectly. So these guys are influential because they're generating the evidentiary basis. They're constructing the facts on the ground that are informing the legal and administrative policies that happen in the metropole. So in that sense, they're kind of weak. They don't have direct channels of communication often. When they do, it's filtered through either the chief commissioner or the high financial commissioner. So they're not directly speaking to the big guys. They also really have limited direct rulemaking authority. There's a ton of discretionary space within the confines of what they're doing. So they can decide what time they're going to go collect opium revenue. They can decide who's going to be categorized together, whether a Shan will be categorized as a Burman or as a kind of separate type of category of consumer. And because they have tons of discretionary power within constructing knowledge, they're the ones who are actually quite powerful because they're making the world legible to the guys up in Paris or in London or in Calcutta. These are literally the guys who are writing the labels, the numbers, doing the calculations that are being cited in the major policy papers. They're the ones writing the actual text that gets lifted and quoted out of context and circulating through different parliamentary debates. They have key informational and interpretive roles. And that's what I argue throughout the book gives them a ton of discretionary power. So an example of this kind of filtering up is maybe the number 11%. So in Burma in 1894, when an anti-opium reform is introduced, banning on consumption because of this problem of public health and crime, 11% is a number that's cited and tossed around saying, ah, this percent of the population is harmed. That number comes from a calculation by what looks like the financial commissioner, Daniel Smeaton. But he, in turn, had actually commissioned a survey asking district officials throughout the colony to give descriptive numbers of how many people they could count were consuming opium, how many seemed physically wrecked versus morally wrecked. Without any really clear definition of what the difference was, it was kind of, you guys figure it out, interpret it. And then he aggregates the numbers under the morally wrecked, while, by the way, the administrators are also circulating memos amongst themselves, being like, what does it mean to be morally wrecked? What are we actually counting? But nonetheless, they aggregate them up, and he uses this and averages it out over the census number. It kind of estimates that the total Burmese family has around six people. So this is the amount of harm that's being done per family, per individual. And that 11% number gets stuck into one of the big reports in a Royal Opium Commission inquiry that everyone in Parliament is paying attention to because it's dealing with opium politics in India, where a lot of attention is. And it comes to the attention of the chief head of that commission. And he calls Smeaton asking, what is this thing, moral wreckage? And where are you getting the numbers? And that's a site where there's a back and forth that's covered in the press. And this becomes an established fact about how much opium is injuring Burma. And so it becomes deemed an exceptional place for the opium politics for the British Indian Empire. And the twist here is that 
British India is really reluctant to do anything against opium, but they make an exception for Burma because of this unique vulnerability. Wow, that's a great story. (laughs) Great story. Let's talk a bit about your empirical strategy in the book. You analyze three main cases of colonial opium monopolies, British Burma, Malaya, and French Indochina. But you construct your three-case comparison in a somewhat unusual way that you call temporal layering. So the Burma case covers the 1870s to the 1890s. The Malayan case covers the three decades after that. And the Indochina case covers about two decades after that. So you aren't comparing different units at the same period of time, and you're not following a most similar systems design or sort of method of difference design where you're comparing units that are similar in all other ways except for some suspected causal variable. How would you describe your method for comparing cases here, and why did you structure it that way? The research design for the cases is really aimed at how to explain a process. So it was very much about answering a how question and getting the argument of this is the way in which local bureaucrats are doing official problem construction and having its effects. That was the argument that I really wanted to be able to demonstrate. And what I quickly realized while doing the research was that a conventional method of a controlled comparison, most similar design, wasn't going to work in part because all of my sites were interconnected. There's a necessity to presume independence across cases in order to control. And I realized there was no possible way that I would be able to control and presume that these sites were not already connected through trade, through bureaucratic information sharing, through learning and diffusion. And so I grappled with that and I thought, okay, That is arguably one of the most interesting parts of my argument, how bureaucrats are constructing their problems, what resources they're drawing on. So I decided, rather than figuring out how to bracket those and pretend that they don't affect my argument, how do I accommodate them? So everything that should maybe be controlled for, I wanted to make part of the argument because it shows the complexity of the process, the moments when bureaucrats are borrowing templates as they did in Burma from India, when they are responding or kind of pretending to listen to international pressures. I wanted that to all be part of the story. So that's the kind of intuition behind this layered comparison. The layering is, as you mentioned, it's temporal. It's temporally sequenced into these discrete periods. Together, they're capturing the full lifespan of an opium prohibition under this institution called an opium monopoly. Burma captures the beginning and the birth. The middle captures the development through Malaya. And French Indochina is effectively the end moment of the opium monopoly. So in sequencing these temporally, I was also trying to get a full picture of the opium monopoly's evolution. And in addition, this description of a causal process is theoretically informed by certain expectations that we might have of when opium prohibition should be occurring. So returning to the existing explanations that we talked about at the beginning. So I looked and tried to anticipate where are places that people might most expect similar reforms or similar timings in terms of anti-opium activities. So it seemed that Burma and Malaya, both of the same kind of 
national empire of Britain, people might expect British metropolitan policies to be traveling over at a similar time. So I layered them together to show that that's not the case. These colonies don't move in tandem. And then Indochina and Malaya went together because one might expect that these are the places that had the highest reported dependency upon opium revenue. So if anything, this is where you might see similar kind of moves to substitute that revenue. But what in fact I show is that it's only in the case of British Malaya where this opium revenue replacement reserve fund emerges to squarely take on opium dependency, where that doesn't occur within French Indochina because, as I'm arguing, the problem conception was happening differently. So that's the intuition behind this layered comparison. So there are sort of two distinct empirical tasks here. One is to tap into the understandings actors on the ground in the colonies were developing to trace out their lines of reasoning, their mistakes, their anxieties. But a second task is to show that these interpretive acts from the low-level bureaucrats mattered for policy. Um, You gave us this really compelling example before about this 11% number that filtered its way from lower-level bureaucrats trying to figure out a number in Burma of the percentage of the indigenous population that were being affected by opium and how that went all the way up to top policymakers. Can you give us a, a sense of how you show that lower-level bureaucrats actually had influence over choices made by senior bureaucrats and policymakers? So there are two kinds of ways to ascertain how these local administrators are having an impact. One in terms of informing the senior bureaucrats and higher level policymakers. And there, it has to do a lot with just paper trails and citation practices. So there's something remarkable about a lot of the statistics, the descriptive statistics that I was using are ones that I didn't originally find in the lower level records. I saw them in parliamentary reports. And they're constantly saying, look, this was used in the chief commissioner's report in 1893, who himself built upon the authority of previous administrations. So that for me was a clue to chase down that report, figure out what was the full text, because these parliamentary reports don't include the entire table. They select out the portions that, of course, are more advantageous to the own narratives that they want to be spinning. So I wanted to look at where the raw material was. So chasing that down the reverse direction was one strategy that I was using. The second one to tell how impact is happening is actually to look at what changes were happening on the ground. So we tend to think that the policy changes, anti-opium reforms, sales changes are happening because the upper levels want to reduce opium. They want to perform something before the international community. They tell the lower guys to do something, and then it's either executed or not. That's our standard understanding of policy implementation. But as the literature on street-level bureaucrats tells us, implementation blurs together with policy redefinition and formulation on the ground. So in some cases... For instance, in French Indochina, where ostensibly prices were raised on opium in order to make it more difficult for the average consumer to access. So you you price things higher, it deters 
consumption. That's the kind of general principle. But the actual reason why the price changed what I found looking through audit reports in the Vietnamese National Archives was that it was a strategy that the local administrators had come up with on their own in order to dispose of excess opium that they had just piling up. This was a problem that they needed to solve. The uppers didn't know anything about it, and you won't see anything in their kind of discussions about it. And they were creating new blends of opium and creating new names for them, like the star blend of opium, the dragon blend of opium, these fantastical names. Again, something that doesn't come from above. It comes at the discretion of these local officials. And when they started to introduce these new blends, the consumption rates that they themselves reported started to move wildly. Like one year, there was a radical drop in opium consumption because most people couldn't afford it. Then there was a huge rebounding through the illicit economy. And then in panic, that's when the upper metropolitan administrators are responding. So what I'm trying to get at is that there's a kind of micro-level implementation of policies that's happening on the ground. And that's actually where all the action is happening. And that's happening through what the local administrators are reporting on and acting upon. So I was really looking at that fine level of administration. Thinking about the overall empirical method in the book, I almost want to call it historical ethnography. And that's because of the way in which you really dwell among the lower-level bureaucrats you're studying and come to understand the way that they're ascribing meaning to the world. The kinds of evidence that you draw on include the diaries of local administrators, draft reports they wrote, confidential memos, internal correspondence, basically all the paperwork that got produced in what you call the everyday work of these officials of modest rank. And as you work through your analysis of these records, you also push back against a fairly common understanding of official discourses as being secondary to hard material interests or as being mere smokescreens for the materialist goals that political actors have. You tend to take the words of the bureaucrats you're studying as sincerely reflective of how they constructed meaning for themselves. But how can we actually tell the difference? Is there some danger here of taking political actors' words too seriously as transcripts of their actual internal cognitions? I think there's both certainly a danger, but also enormous value to taking seriously the words, the language, and the official discourses of actors, especially within the state. And for me, the official discourses, which is really what I'm focusing on, what these administrators are writing in their public and official capacity, those discourses are ways to index the kind of world of ideas, the precedents, and what are effectively permissible boundaries of speech and writing during their time period. And I think different types of records and different types of situations lend a kind of systematic way to parse through when it's more likely you're going to be seeing things that they are conveying about their own worlds versus things that they're hiding or things that they are just prevaricating. So, Serial documents, the kind of annual reports that are published on a monthly basis, these are 
amongst the most mind-numbing of administrative reports that reflect routinized tasks, I think there's actually good reason to take them at face value, that when they're describing what's happening, this much smuggling is happening, this kinds of sales are occurring, these are the problems. I think there are more often assertions of what the actors believe as facts on the ground. I think when we're talking about witness testimonies that these administrators are making before senior officials, when they're making public speeches, there's a great deal of reason to be skeptical about what they're actually saying. And there's better reason to focus on specific concepts, the kind of categories and labels that they're using, and think about why they're using them. So I think there's actually a way to kind of parse through differences in tenor that may be reflecting different expressive strategies of these administrative actors. And I think the payoff is huge once we think about a lot of the administrative records, the archives that we use to study the colonial state, even the contemporary state. It opens a whole new opportunity to think about what does this tell about actors' strategies, motives, and when can we actually discern certain types of information for them. So I found it to be uh, more productive rather than a kind of foreclosing empirical approach. So thinking about the amount of evidence that you've collected, it must not have been easy to go into the kinds of archives that you're working with to pour over boxes of documents. Many, I'm guessing, were quite poorly organized, reading and detailing really micro-level day-to-day processes, trying to make sense of it all and to see what led to what led to what. So each individual piece of paper you come across must have been such a tiny part of the puzzle you're trying to put together, or maybe in the end, it may not have even been part of the puzzle at all. And I know from experience that archival work, doing that kind of piecing together of individual pieces of paper can often be completely overwhelming and that it's really easy to just feel lost in the masses of documentation. I'd be interested in hearing how you found this experience and what you did to help you piece together the puzzle and the story. It was definitely a long project in terms of the archival collection. In total, I spent around 22 months in repositories across Southeast Asia. So Vietnam, Cambodia, and Myanmar were the main places that I did on-site archival research. And then I was moving back and forth a lot in Britain and France, where the National Archives have copies of most of the records that were transferred during decolonization. And so it was a fun transcontinental movement, chasing down records. When I started this project, I had this worry that I might not be able to get enough evidence or records, because opium is such a sensitive topic, drugs in Southeast Asia are normally controversial. And then I realized once I got to the archives, nobody cared about my subject. It was a boring subject. It's a taxation matter. It's categorized under excise taxation. And so permissions were surprisingly easy. And then I think what really kind of blew my mind was how much paperwork and how much evidence there was. Their commission reports, I talked about some of the ledgers. Every time this kind of statistical table is produced that summarizes the past 20 years amount of net opium revenue expenditure, opium value, 
It takes a ton of back paperwork in order to sort them out, calculate them. They're in the margin notes. So I, at some point, just found myself staring at these tons of paper at every level, from the village level up to the cross-colony level. I was looking at papers relating to the African colonies for the French Empire, Polynesia. So for me, the greatest challenge was actually taming that abundance and figuring out where what was the story that I wanted to tell and how was I able to anchor it throughout these documents. So for example, for the French Vietnam, French Indochina case, part of the opium problem construction and its consequences leads into an enormous amount of opium that can't be sold. It's started to go rotten, just lying around in the bank of Indochina's cellar. And I was like, well, how is this happening? It came out in a newspaper report. And so I started to dig around. There were metropolitan audit reports that are conducted regarding the colony's various activities. And I had kind historians who were pointing me towards these records. And so I chased down, okay, what's up with the relationship between the Bank of Indochina and the excise department? So I looked at individuals. I was fortunate in finding a set of documents in the Vietnam archives, which actually hadn't been transferred to France, that were explaining the internal kind of deliberations amongst the excise officers about what the hell are we going to do with all of this opium? And so that let me figure out, okay, they have a crisis. Where did this crisis come from? And then I looked back in time at the kind of accounts they were using. They were using a special reserve accounts and emergency funds that had been put together during the early 20th century that allowed for emergency purchasing of opium because opium is sensitive to the volatility of trade. And so it was constantly picking these little strands that were taking me to different time periods across different archives and physical continents. And yeah, I think putting it as feeling lost is a very good description. I felt both psychologically lost and kind of floating around and not knowing where to put the anchor. I think research is always an emotional process. And for me, one thing that was helpful was to tell myself, even the things that may not make it into the dissertation as strong evidence for my argument are still informative of how I formulate the puzzle how I formulate and refine the question and kind of giving me that space to be okay with archival research that doesn't return something was a psychological crutch that I used a lot because we're trained to find things. That's how we're trained as political scientists. Null results are kind of freaky and archival research does a lot of that. And so my Laptop at this point has a couple of gigabytes of records that I copied, didn't really know what to do, never really could figure them into the book. And I think coming to peace with that is another way that archival research became something manageable. We'd like to take a step back to talk about some of the book's larger themes. One of those themes emerges from the way in which the book sort of riffs off of Hugh Hecklow and his famous juxtaposition of puzzling and what he calls powering. You say that while modern states tend to puzzle first and then power, colonial states powered first and only then puzzled. Can you explain what you mean by this? And what does this 
tell us about the nature of colonial state building? So I'm really fond of Heckler's formulation, which I think is helpful to think about sequences through which state formation and its relationship to knowledge works. Hugh Heckler suggests that states need to first know who they're regulating. They have to categorize people, puzzle over society, and then formulate conceptions that inform the way that they implement policies. And this has been applied to the study of vice regulation a lot, where scholars of the regulation of homosexuality, of prostitution, of gambling have talked about, look, there's a conception that's formulated about who's problematic, who needs to be targeted, and then you see punitive measures emerge. That's how we tend to think about state formation related to vice regulation. But what's striking in the case of colonial Southeast Asia that's illustrated through the experience of opium is that states puzzle after they first started collecting revenue, calling opium a vice, and saying that they're going to regulate it through taxation. But without a clear conception about why exactly taxation is the right way to regulate this vice, what types of pathologies they're dealing with, all of that is clarified afterwards in the process of administering. And I think this has a lot to do with the way in which the colonial state is fundamentally built upon an arrogation of authority. It's an imposed form of rule. This learning about society happens in an incredibly truncated and swift fashion. And so if you have this reverse ordering of powering before puzzling, from the bureaucracy's perspective, you're always overreaching. You're always dealing with problems that are the unintended consequences, inefficiencies from borrowed templates, hurriedly working through things, and then you're cleaning up the mess afterwards. And that's a kind of very descriptive way to account for what I think is a larger dynamic of colonial state formation. Your book is so beautifully written. Not to knock on our discipline, but as a reader, it didn't feel like I was reading a political science book or a history book. In some ways, it felt like I was reading a detective novel or a comedy of errors of these administrators making, well, causal inference mistakes. I can tell that you put a lot of thought into how to express the ideas that this book contains, how you crafted it, the language that goes into this book. And one thing I'm wondering about is how you thought about how to characterize your main protagonists, the colonial administrators. They were administering systems of exploitation and subjugation, and yet you've not written a story in which they're the villains. Can you talk a little bit about how you thought about characterizing these actors. Thank you very much for that incredible compliment. To know that the book is readable is incredibly gratifying for me. One of the hardest struggles that I had in finishing the book really was the writing, because the more and more I read the archives and the more and more I was piecing together bits, in a really uncomfortable way, a lot of their actions made sense to me. So the causal inference thing. There are a lot of jumps that they're making, moving across different units of analysis, extrapolating, dealing with ecological inference problems all over the place. But there's also something that made sense about it. And while not totally sympathetic, the fact that I found their choices and their rationales understandable, sometimes repugnant, but also sometimes reasonable, was troubling to me. And the book is a product of really grappling with that. 
in my case, I'm dealing with historical actors. And what I was trying to do was really not to see the world through their eyes. I don't think that was the appropriate strategy for me. But I was just trying to reconstruct their world and consider what were the possibilities they had for action. And this for me was really trying to think about what are plausible counterfactuals too within their realm? What are paths they could have taken and they didn't? Which kind of helped me think systematically both about the argument, but also to be both gentle but not excusing of actors for dealing in a time period that I have the benefit of hindsight on. We know what happened with the end of opium prohibition. It's moved towards criminalization. One thing that I argue towards the end of the book is that this really shapes the post-colonial legacies of Southeast Asia. It's kind of conundrums with illicit drug economies, extraordinary punitive states, and this is a legacy that's carried on. But if we just focus on the period at hand, based on the evidence, it's really hard to find clean links from what the actors did to what effects that they had, let alone drawing clean links from intentionality. And so there, you know, there are so many moments when I wished I could just tell the easier villain story, that these guys are the cogs in the machine who helped the colonial project move forward and were kind of blind to everything that was going on, that they're responsible. But that would have been giving much more coherence, almost giving too much credit to something that I really didn't see in that way. It was a ton of mistakes, a lot of half-baked attempts at reform, a ton of frustration. And I really didn't want to aggrandize that either. And I think this is where, for me, the humanistic side and social scientific side of inquiry really come together when we study colonial legacies. Because we always grapple with this question about, well, who's responsible? Was this good in the long term? And I think, in a way, the book is open-ended in terms of how it judges the administrators, and that reflects my own ambivalence. One really nice way in which you drive home this point in the book's conclusion is in comparing your argument to the argument of Jim Scott in his book, Seeing Like a State. You say that Scott writes about arrogant states that engaged in grand projects of standardization in order to make societies more governable. But you point out that in your analysis, and I quote, the powerful are not always so confident that state-making is often driven forward more by what you call the anxieties of those who govern than by the arrogance of power. And I'm wondering what all of this sort of suggests about how we ought to be normatively evaluating colonialism itself. The story you're telling takes place in this context of domination, subjugation, exploitation. But as we've said, this isn't really a story with villains. And so if colonial state building was often shaped by the efforts of bureaucrats to solve problems that were often of their own making, they did so often with what you call tragic ineptness, and were pushed this way and that by anxieties and conflictedness. And if we can't draw these straight lines from intentions to outcomes, does this in any way complicate our assessment of colonialism in moral terms? One thing towards the end of the book that I wanted to make really clear was to underscore how sometimes the strong, they rule in spite of themselves. We're more attuned to thinking about the forceful 
asymmetries of power that let them dominate. But there's also a kind of action that happens that's propelled more by a sense of you can't stop doing what you have. The power of the status quo, the kind of rush of path dependency itself as a historical force, rather than a drive to achieve something. So I really wanted to focus and kind of flesh out, and this I think is echoed in a lot of our scholarship, that rulers are held back by precedents. They're held back by compromises. And the kind of making do and muddling through it is a more accurate description of what the everyday texture of governance looks like. And I think that was what I was trying to get at in talking about the anxieties of those who govern and pointing to inconsistencies in policies as par for the course rather than moments of failure in terms of when the states are behaving. And I think you're right. It brings up this larger question about how do we think about the morality or the moral assessments of colonialism? And by no means do I think my approach is any less critical of the injury, the kind of indignity and violence that was done through imposed systems of rule. But what I think it does is that it gives much more reason to think about who we're talking about. Who's the who in colonialism? Who are the actors who are actually doing specific actions? And when did they aggregate up into infrastructures, policies that had effects? So I really want to think about the individuals who are making colonialism what it was. I think we often have a tendency to bracket the normative implications of studies of colonialism and its legacies as a matter of epistemological commitments or disciplinary practice. But I think it's worth thinking explicitly about what are the implications normatively when we say that colonial states had certain lasting impacts upon economic development, elite formation, the various types of outcomes that we care about. Not because to judge is part of our research agenda, but because it's necessarily part of understanding the way that colonialism actually operated. And so that kind of fidelity, I think, is something that we gain more of a sensitivity towards. So in the final part of the book, you discuss the legacies of these opium empires to modern day, really draconian drug laws that are put in place and enforced in the region of Southeast Asia. You tell us that only 30 countries in the world have the death penalty for nonviolent drug offenses, and one third of them are in Southeast Asia. Bringing it back to basically your original interest of contemporary policing of drug-related activities in the region, can you talk a little bit about carrying over the major threads of your book to today? Colonial-era opium prohibition carries over into the independent state era, the era of the nation-state building for Southeast Asia, through the continuity of a lot of the old infrastructures that the European powers failed to fully dismantle, as well as a set of ways of posing the relationship between the state and what are eventually becoming illegal drug economies. So Southeast Asia, after decolonization, never starts from a blank slate. Politicians, bureaucrats always are working with the assumption that Given that there are already existing opium shops, patterns of opium addiction, illicit economies, trafficking networks, involved economic actors, 
what are the ways in which we can formulate tolerable violations of law and order? What are permissible acts of corruption, collusion between states and criminal organizations? So this is the kind of legacy that Southeast Asia bears today. And in a way, this was something that I eventually am glad to come back to because it in many ways informed how I first approached this project, thinking about the different approaches that states adopted towards the Golden Triangle region. And what had gotten me thinking about prohibition as a puzzle, thinking about the colonial period, was that in looking for the specific laws when drugs are criminalized so harshly, I realized all of them were colonial era laws. So in terms of Burma, there's an excise act from the early 1910s, which bans the use of syringes for non-medical purposes. There's a 1931 Dangerous Drug Act. And those are basically on the books and continue over time. So in a way, it feels that I'm coming back into a full circle, returning to the question that started in the contemporary moment of where these kinds of drug policies came from and how do we understand the past. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation, Diana. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you enormously. This is so much fun. That's our episode for today. Our content editor is Fabio Resmini, and our sound editor is Daniel Rinaldi. Our theme music is by the Great North Sound Society. Thanks to UBC's Department of Political Science for supporting this podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.